0: I wanted to avoid the risk of looking back in 30 years time and feeling like I didn't really give it a go.
1: Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders and what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. In our last bite-sized episode of this series, we're joined by Steve Coulson, founder and CEO of KIT. KIT designs and operates inspiring workspaces for businesses looking to tailor their space to their people, brand, and culture. I've known Steve for many years, so it's a real pleasure to have him on the pod to find out more about KIT's amazing journey over the last five years. So welcome to 40 Mental Mentor, Steve. How are you? Thank you so much for joining us. How are things?
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on. I am great and even better for spending time with you today.
1: Oh, wow. The pleasure is all mine. We've got to start off, I guess, with your background. So for anyone that doesn't know you, do you mind giving us a a whistle-stop tour of your CV today? Is that okay?
0: Sure. I'll stop short of my GCSEs, which are not that interesting. So I started off in investment banking in the M&A team, and that was a lot of spreadsheets and not a lot of sleep and learned a lot but felt in that stint, as well as having done a stint in strategy consulting, that whilst these are really useful skills, and I can see the value in what you're doing. For me, yeah. I just wanted to get much closer to the action. And I think it was around about that time that you and I met in a coffee shop in London Bridge, very randomly, just like- I remember it well, yeah. I know, just so I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And I decided to join a startup called Just Park, which had just been rebranded from Park at my house. And at that time- it was a small team and it was mostly just a website and enabling people to buy and sell driveway spaces. I joined as, with the illustrious title of Head of Airport Parking as we were going to um, launch that side of the business. I got my business cards made. It was all very um, tongue-in-cheek in some respects, but had a really good experience there, but quite quickly pivoted the business, took, took on the management of it with a couple of people there and got to have a go at running and scaling a business at a pretty early stage in my career, which was an incredible experience. And I, I owe a lot owe lots to the founder, Anthony, who allowed us to do that. And uh, thankfully, it all worked out pretty well. But during that process of building a business and hiring people and making mistakes, we thought actually now's the time after about four years of doing that to start our own thing. And in short, we wanted to tackle a problem that was very big, also that was quite complicated, because we like complicated problems. And finally, one where if you got it right, you could affect lots of people's lives every day. And when we thought long and hard, and we as Lucy, who I worked with at Just Park and and myself, and then we went on to, to found Kit, we set ourselves upon the office. For us, the office was the best and the hardest thing about the culture of our team. It was where the magic lived. It was where we socialized, made friends, people moved to rent nearby because that was where the activity and the buzz was happening. We were all young, hungry, and just completely committed and and loved the space we were in. But it was also where the headaches were because genuinely in a board meeting, your AC is dripping on one of your investors' heads and you don't know what the problem is and who's going to solve it. And so we said, look, if we had a product that would wrap all of that up into a service offering where we paid one price and everything was handled, we would have bought it in a heartbeat. And uh, that's really where where our journey of kit began five years ago now.
1: Amazing. You mentioned that coffee we had in London Bridge, And I remember at the time, sort of sensing your entrepreneurialism. And I think at the time you had alluded to sort of aspirations to move into tech. And at that time, that wasn't necessarily a normal move. I think there was definitely more people looking at entrepreneurial things, but a lot of people in consulting or banking sort of went to other consultancies or banks. I remember being really struck by that sense of like purpose around and uh, making that entrepreneurial move. So I wanted to ask, have you always been that way inclined? Like has that entrepreneurial spirit been there from your childhood or is that just something that just sort of emerged while you were in the kind of corporate rat race? Uh, fill us in a bit on, on that side of things.
0: Sure. So I think it really, for me, with my parents and the way I grew up, that world was the norm in that my dad is on the extreme end of the tech entrepreneurial spectrum in that I think for the last 30 years of his career he was in a garage at the end of our garden building microchips and then selling eventually successfully them in kind of very high volumes and so the idea that dad was working on it and it might not be going that well right now and therefore we were going to have to be a bit careful or it was going really well right now and all everything in between like it was just very normal for us I think when I made the move particularly going from investment banking to consulting down to startup, it was kind of like the hockey stick chart in the wrong way in that my base salary was getting crushed in every move I was making. But I think people say it's such a big risk to leave these things. And I, I do understand that because ultimately, particularly investment banking, but also consulting, it's a, if you work hard and you do your job well, you will be successful, however, in a kind of financial sense. And it's a rewarding career, I'm sure. I think for me, my understanding of risk was a bit different in that, I wanted to avoid the risk of looking back in 30 years time and feeling like I didn't really give it a go and have a try. And it was kind of, I think it was, I can't remember which one of the famous entrepreneurs it is, but it's like a regret minimization framework. And so for me, given that I'd had a background in bank consulting, the downside of it going wrong in these companies that either I joined or started was I'd just get another job. And if I kept my cost incredibly low, like Happiness isn't really defined by how much money you earn so long as you can pay for the things you need. And I knew that I could always go and get a job I need to. So I thought, well, why not, with the privilege that I've got, go and try to start something really big and scary that may not work, but at least I would have known that I tried. And I think um that risk was always the big one. And it came really, as I said, from my dad, who's been inventing microchips for thirty years before they were sexy.
1: That's incredible. I didn't realize that that is really cool and it, it makes a lot of sense where you've had this kind of I guess that that entrepreneurial spirit is something that you've grown up with. I really love the way you framed the kind of the risk there and like the decision making and it, and it you were very deliberate you know you you were willing to take the sacrifice of taking big hits in your salary and you really were one of the first in my network to kind of consciously go after that whereas now fast forward a number of years this is like all we get is hundreds of applications every week from consultants and people working in banking and corporates desperate to make the move into tech. And it even took JBM five years to kind of really commit all into that space. So you were ahead of the curve on that one. I'm a big fan of what you're building. I have been from the early days. And I remember you telling me, I remember actually we met for a coffee, I think, in the very, very early days of Kit. And you had this kind of big, big vision for it. And you've done amazingly well. But there are going to be some people that haven't heard of Kit, so do you mind sharing a bit more? You've given us a bit of a taster into the origin story, but do you mind sharing a bit more about how it kind of came to be, and also why you ultimately made the leap when you did from Just Park to kind of go all in and build it?
0: Yeah, sure. So Anthony, the founder of Just Park, is a good friend, and I think we had a very open conversation during our time there after a couple of years of being there saying, look i would we would love to start a business one day, and he was very, very prone, and his one of his proudest things that he said is that people who he's employed go on to start businesses that fills him with a lot of joy. And so it was kind of an open conversation that we've been having for a while. And for us, once we'd got the business to a point where it was growing, we knew what we were doing, and we'd hired in some great people and raised some money, it felt as though it was on the right path, and it was ready for someone to come and take it on and work with Anthony to do so. And so it was more a case of We'd learned a ton in that period of time. We got the business in a position where we we could be comfortable and proud of what we'd done. But really, we were always working backwards from starting a business. That was always the plan. I think when it came to Kit, the name was decided very randomly in a pub in Kentish Town on the basis that we felt we were building kind of like a digital assistant who was going to help you with your workspace. And David Hasselhoff had one of those in his car called Kit. Yes, I remember it (laughs) Was that Night Rider? It was Night Rider, yeah.
1: Yeah, the younger generation. Night Rider was something I used to watch when I was a kid. And
0: it's, you've got to check it out. It's probably dated very badly now. but <laughs> I think it was dated badly when it was made, but it was cheesy and it was fun. If we'd known more about SEO, then we would have realized that outranking David Hasselhoff was quite difficult. But that being said, we, we picked a name and went for it. And really... As I said, we had experienced a problem firsthand. And when we looked at the fundamentals a bit more deeply, we came across a couple of really interesting things about this market. Firstly, outside of payroll, it's the number one expense on your PL. You spend a lot of money on this. Number two is you aren't served in the way that you are with other expensive things you buy. So if you look at, particularly now, all of the other things you buy as a business, it's all very um, packaged up, customer-friendly, made easy. You've got teams working hard to make it great for you. And it feels like renting an office is a bit like trying to pay your council tax. It's like, it's just hard. That was really unusual. And I think the, the final piece that was interesting is in order to solve this problem, you would have to build quite a complicated bit of technology because in the same way at Just Park where we were running 50,000 car parks for 10 million drivers and we had an app in between that really was orchestrating that experience. Um, we were going to have to do the same in offices. And I naively thought, offices and car parks, how different can those things be? Turns out they're very, very different. We said we, in order for this to work, you have to digitize the majority of the office management role and make it available to companies and then plug an incredible supply chain into that platform such that If there's a problem with a wobbly doorknob or you want to order an additional service or you want to have a yoga class come into your space, it's seamless and easy. And that's a mixture of hardware and software that really compelled us because that's what we had built previously. When we looked at that, we said this is perfect for us. And really when it started, after the first week, I think of kind of this is exciting. We've just bought laptops and we've got a a little office in West Hampstead, I think it was. Um, You have that deafening and terrifying sound of silence and I think that was what I didn't really expect in that you'll have had the same. Maybe you were much more successful than we were quickly. But you go from getting constant validation of value and you don't realize you get it in a job. So when, I, when we were running Just Park, a customer complaint is a validation of value because they want something from you or they wanted something. And you didn't deliver it, but they still wanted it. Or a partnership agreement that you might get signed up is, again, a validation of value. And every day you realize that you're useful. When you're starting a business, it's like, if you don't turn up every day and crush it, nothing happens. And it's the sound of silence is terrifying. And no one knows what you're doing. And no one really cares. And I think that was that beginning period is really why I realized entrepreneurship. So many people don't survive the first year is because I think And when I asked one of our previous investors, what's the biggest reason that things go wrong? And he said, it's not product market fit. It's not team it's not funding it's because the founders give up because it's too hard and I think I realized in the first three months exactly why that was and the good thing about that is you can flip that on its head because if the only reason that you will fail is because you give up then you have to build your entire strategy around that and that's where daily stand-ups weekly metric setting giving yourself targets that you can hit and you can control on a week-by-week basis and then adjusting them every week that's how we got through that period and we became quite comfortable because we said, well, look, if we don't give up, then success is inevitable. So long as we're, we listen to the customer and we're willing to do anything. And I think the one part of our business that we pivoted after a week of starting was we thought we were going to be a pure technology business, just sitting in the middle, much like Just Park is, whereas actually we realized that we need to become an operational business that was powered by technology. And there was a moment we have still have the slack thread where we were going back and forth of like, what does this mean? It was this like long semi debate argument thing. And we finally came to peace with the fact that we, in order to build a very, very big business in a three trillion a year category, we were going to have to get our hands dirtier than we got them before. And I'm so glad we did. But um, it's the reason it works is because you're willing to do the hardest part of it. And for us, a hundred different suppliers into a single person's office is the hardest part. And, um, That's why it works. Wow. Amazing evolution. So now, who do you typically
1: work with? Can you give some examples of your sort of archetypal clients?
0: Sure. So Oatly is a client of ours. They've got a stunning space in in Farringdon. We work with companies like Zayo, who are a multinational fibre provider. We work with PZ Cousins, who do lots of skincare and beauty products. Really, I would say when we first started, we were serving startups between 20 and 50 people. I'd say now we're mostly working with teams of fifty to five hundred people who are looking for a space that feels like their own. And really, our pitch versus all of the other brands in in the market is: we will build it around your business, and we only go after teams who want their own floor. So you won't see the kit brand on any of the offices. It's it's all about you, and that's the that's the main difference.
1: Yeah, I love that. You're obviously five years in now, so. I'd love to hear a bit more about what were the early days like at Kit, particularly in comparison to to now you're a you know, really established business. And I guess for any early stage founders that might be kind of in the at the cold phase, kind of trying to get towards product market fit at the moment, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned that you can kind of pass on to anyone in that situation right now?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think before you're 10 people, I think it's just electric. There's that initial period of like silence and terror when nothing's happening. But when you start getting that early momentum and it starts taking on a life of its own, I think that's like the electric moment for the business in that you hire people because you've got too much work to do that's valuable. And the risk shifts from like, will we actually win business in to then how do we execute against this momentum without the wheels falling off? Because you've built zero processes by definition because you haven't got a product that's been defined or validated yet and then you suddenly go into a place where it's called momentum and I think that for us was shifting from two of us in a room to then 10 people in a circle every day saying what are we doing today and what's my one goal it's super fun and the people you hire at that stage are a completely different breed in that they they're generalists they're in it for the excitement and the vision and They acknowledge that this is likely not to work on the balance of probabilities, but if it did, that it would be incredible. And so they just want to be a part of something. And I think it has that family feel to it, which is really special. So for us, we said we were always going to have the worst office because we had to work our way up to having the best one in regards to the floor. So we were always in the basement for the first year and a half. So we were stuck there with secondary light, we like to call it, which is light coming down the stairways. And it was just turning up every day, and making daily commitments, and then learning as we went. And I think we had a couple of really big moments where we would always, as a team, when a new customer was moving into a space, we were managing for them. Um, The day before, we would always sit in their office and do our team meeting and do it there. And we had one where, I think it was our fourth or fifth client, where they were an enormous multinational brand. And it was the first time we were working with a proper, proper company. And I think for us, it was this feeling this weird combination of excitement and pride, but also are they really happy going in with us that kind of, this is our fourth go. And I think for me, realizing that you could win business and partner with some of these incredible companies at very early stage, just emboldened me of where the gap in the market was, because if we as a company who's six, seven months old is working with the world, one of the world's largest companies, then by definition, there is a gap in the market because Otherwise, they would have picked one of the established players, which didn't exist. So for us, moments like that made all the difference to really validate it. And I think genuinely leading up to March 2020, which was probably the seminal moment for the business, it felt like something we'd never felt before, where it was just going and going and going, accelerating. And we were just trying to hire people who we thought were great as quickly as we could. And then we can talk about covid and everything else but those early days were just electric exciting and it just felt like everything that we put hard for in the first four or five months of terror suddenly started clicking into place yeah i'd get excited just thinking about it and going back to the early
1: days of jbm where every win it just feels incredible and you've got that that early team and i think it takes a real particular type of person to take that risk to join something on basically a vision, a founder's vision, and get so stuck into making it a reality. I just love that. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that's sort of probably stoking some fires to go again to that sort of early stage, which is a lot of fun, but very stressful. And talking of stressful, a perfect segue into talking about COVID, which you've alluded to, navigating that considering what you do must have been beyond challenging. So can you share a bit more about what was that whole time like for you and Lucy and
0: what the shift to remote first and hybrid working has meant for your business? Sure. So I think important context is funding in that we'd raised money a couple of times before COVID, one to start and one to start accelerating. And then we, we had agreed uh, around, I think it was in January or February of 2020, it was, around, it was going to be around about £3 million, which was going to be, for an asset-like business, which we are, it was going to make a huge difference. So when March 2020 came along, I think we went through those kind of five stages of grief, which everyone did. And um, there was certainly like, okay, this is a really big deal, but, you know, this could be over in a couple of weeks. It's like a cold. And then and then you start seeing that other countries starting to lock down. And like, okay, this is pretty serious. And I think gradually, probably over three or four weeks, I think we all realised that actually this was going to be one of the defining moments of our lives and in some respects it's funny and i'll be i'll be super open on the one hand you're devastated because all of this momentum you built particularly a sector that was going to be hit hard by this harder than anything probably it all been evaporated whereas on the other hand there was this feeling of failure and success was very much in your hands in a normal environment Versus when you're in COVID, you're like, well, this has been totally taken from my hands and there's literally nothing I can do unless I come up with a good vaccine quickly that's going to make this better. And so you kind of have to accept the situation you're in and then just then just adjust and furlough and all of those good things. But I think there was certainly a head in the hand moments of why did I start a business in commercial real estate? Because um, groceries deliveries felt like a better idea at that point. When we thought longer and harder about it and dealt with all of like the turmoil and the going remote for the first time and And trying to make sure we kept morale up. I think we really felt that there was going to be, all COVID was going to do was accelerate the underlying trends that already existed. I think there was this big narrative of like, the world has changed forever. And in our minds, it was like, I think it's probably just accelerated what was already there. And for us, it was a shift flexible working and the office experience needing to be better. Those were the two things that we felt were going to come out of it. And really it was gonna be a flight to quality, not only on the buildings, but also the experience. And I think we got quite excited about the idea that people would only now need an office that was worth leaving home for. And so for us, the theory was there, but it took till September, 2020, between March and September, we did no new deals. But then from September, 2020 to September, 2022, the business 10 times in revenues. And I think in September, it landed all in the same week, and we'd had nothing for ages and we'd half the company were furloughed and everything else. And then all of a sudden we had an offer come in an offer come in an offer come in an offer come in. And we're like, okay, let's just check. We don't want to get too excited. We've had all these false storms. and they started getting agreed. And they we're saying, okay, well, if these are going to happen. Then we're, we're going we're to need any more team. And so we went from like, I think over half the company being furloughed to then got, being like, guys, we need you all back immediately because we've suddenly got business that's going to double us in the next two months. And the trajectory is going off in a really aggressive direction. I think at that point in September 2020, we were doing maybe 20% of the entire market's volume just because we had a rush early and the market was doing nothing. So all of a sudden it came out of nowhere. And I think that, that moment along, kind of validated the bet we had made. And also that fundraising round I mentioned, which was on the cards in February, to the credit of the investors, they stood true to their word and we closed it in July, having not done any business and so I think we owe the success that we are having now to their vision and kind of um, integrity, really, to follow through because there was a million and one VCs. Really and that's not what you always hear, is it? It was incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, that really is a um, the reverse of what a lot of other founders experience. And I think that's testament to the leadership team, you and Lucy, you know, as founders, what you've built, and they clearly saw it. And I think they've been more than validated in their uh, their trust of you and putting their faith and cash into Kit. So it really is an amazing story from sort of probably what felt like at times a near near terminal sort of situation to an absolute rocket ship. We've definitely seen, you know, lots of our clients moving back to the office. I think it's just definitely been that shift and sort of post-COVID bounce. So how are you finding that from your side now? Is there Are you still seeing that or is it slowing down? Like what's the, what's the market saying at the moment? And are there any emerging trends when it comes to how teams are using their office space that we should share with our audience?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think what's interesting is we have 60 to 70 customers now, either in their space or about to move in, and we get to see their journeys every day because everyone gets an app in the spaces. We have data on everything. And so we really see how spaces are used by different teams on different days and how policy changes have an influence on behaviors. And in some cases, at the moment, anecdotally, but we're looking at some data integrations to make to substantiate this, is performance changes and wellbeing changes on the basis of, of office policies. We've got a lot of data on this now. We're up close and personal with these people every single day. So it's been a really interesting one. I think on the demand side, it's fits and starts. And I think that's quite hard to plan for because you have three weeks where everything's crazy and then you have three weeks where it's kind of very quiet. And it's a bit similar to jumping between those stages of the business at the beginning. But having gone through that cycle for the last three years, we've kind of just got used to it, to be honest. And You have to just be pretty, pretty nimble. I would say that the big demand shift for us was really the profile of company we worked with completely changed. We were working with venture capital-backed startups on the whole, and particularly in the last year, maybe one or two, but the vast, vast majority of 95% of our businesses are now multinational brands with headquarters all over the world. And I think without realizing it, we shifted from being a SME product to now working with some of the world's largest companies. And with any, let's say, a SaaS product that makes that jump, the standards and the complexity suddenly jump up and you have to adjust quickly to that. And I think what we see in terms of how space is being used both by large and small companies is the desk densities have come down dramatically. So I mentioned Oakley before their space could in theory fit 50 desks in it. I think they've got less than 10 desks in there. They've got their own coffee shop because they want to sample their products. They've got a garden, which is stunning with a meeting room outside. Um, They've got, this casual lounge working areas. It's, it looks like a penthouse apartment. We talked a lot about bringing work into the home, but what we've really seen is bringing home into work in that the offices look more and more like lounges and, and kind of club rooms and even residential spaces where you would want to spend lots of time. And I think that's been a big shift in terms of how space is being used. And then inevitably, most people were in four or five days a week before COVID, and now I'd say the average is three days, with all those almost always being Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday for most companies. So that's been interesting. But one of the big questions that we are being asked constantly, and we've, we've built a bunch of tech to help with this, this question, is how are people using space right now, and how does that vary by team, and what kind of policies should we set? It's the number one question. I think initially it was presented as employer versus employee, and it was this kind of juvenile argument i think around who's going to win which i think for me was just more a signal of misalignment because i think pre covid the status quo was everyone comes into the office and that was not that wasn't a decision whereas now there was a decision around do you prefer to work at home mostly or do you prefer to work in the office or somewhere in between and so you end up with this new thing you had to align on and i think what lots of companies initially did was get scared to make any decision and it kind of we had a case study with one company for whom their UK office took the hard decision to say, we want people in three days a week. And they, they moved into their office, I think, in 2021. And their US counterpart said, we're going to leave it up to people to decide on their own because we're nervous about churn. The UK business has not churned a single person from their business from setting a policy that was actually quite unpopular. And the US business has struggled a lot, lot more. And I think that's interesting. And the question is, why is that happening? And I think it's because in the UK business, in this example... The team there made a really hard decision, but backed it up with rationale. We, our business is creativity and to be creative, we need to be together and to be together. We have to do it regularly and to do it regularly. We're going to make it an exciting space to be in. We're going to put lunches on. We're going to make you want to be there, but you have to be there on those days. Otherwise we can't deliver for our customers. And they painted a vision of customers being aligned to company, being aligned to employee. And it was captivating. Versus the others who say, do what you want. And as much as people think, I just want to do what I want. You don't want to throw the baby out of the bath wars because freedom and liberty are great. But we all got excited about joining companies when we did because it was about a bigger vision that was bigger than us that we could become a part of it. And I think the businesses that have struck that balance of saying we need to excite people about the business's direction, rather than trying to massage them into a policy with kind of perks and freebies, you clearly need to do a bit of both. but. That's the main thing we've seen. Those who come out strong in their policy with the rationale have done super well, and it's become a competitive advantage. Really
1: interesting. Really, really interesting. That's a, probably gives a, a lot of founders listening to this some food for thought as they kind of think this through. Before we go, Steve, last question. We've got to ask you as a real expert in this space about what it takes to really create an amazing working environment. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And also, what are some of the common mistakes you see founders making when they're selecting and designing their space?
0: Yeah, great question. And I'm flattered you say I'm an expert. We make a lot of mistakes. And I think often your own environment in the thing that you offer is never as strong as those you do for your clients. But the things that I think we have learned from, and some of it is learned from our clients, but I think the things that we prioritize uh, in terms of great work environment is trying to bring clarity To what people are doing. Because I think in a business like ours, and lots of businesses are trying to push the envelope, people are mostly motivated by their development and their progression and their impact. And yes, paying people well and giving them lunches when they come in and things like that, those things can be really good. But for the best people, they are motivated by growth for themselves personally and the thing they're working on. And so when we think through how do you deliver that, it's about having complete clarity on the goal you're working backwards from and making that as singular as possible. It's then organizing all of your daily, weekly and monthly rituals around accountabilities and ownership against those goals. And then it's trying to create a culture where we take responsibility, but we also take enough risk that we will make mistakes and not being afraid to make mistakes. And I think that's a hard tension because you want to be highly accountable as a business because you're delivering things for your customers and you're trying to move quickly but you also need a safe environment. And I think that tension, they're not mutually exclusive, but they're two things that you have to hold in tension. I think we have done elements of those things pretty well. And the main thing that I particularly tried to focus on in the last few years is just trying to be as open and honest with people as I can. And um, if again, in similar to setting an office policy, if it's a hard decision or someone's left the business or you're going to change a product direction or whatever it is, just being honest with what's going on and what that means. I think that's important to us. I think what we've seen when we look at some of the mistakes made that we've made and maybe others have done too, I think is one is not transitioning out of the family, the familial stage quickly enough. Cause I think when you're five, 10 people, it's all very relaxed all very chill. It's not very accountable outside of the informal accountabilities. There's no processes because you all know each other and you just yell across the desk. But I think, Making that transition is really hard because it's not just the fact that you've got to do a lot of work that seems a bit boring, which it can be. But it's also the fact you kind of have to grieve that stage being over because it's so fun. But I think those who stay in the family stage too long, it remains fun for a while. But I think the chaos and the lack of clarity and everything else, I think it just eats itself up a bit. So we transitioned probably a bit late out of that because we were afraid to have a high accountability because we were nervous that people would respond in a way That was negative but the opposite as it was with the office policy the opposite's true your best people want accountability ownership because they want impact and growth and i think that for us would be the main thing i've learned is bring that in earlier and your best people will thrive so long as you give them the right support absolutely brilliant advice steve thank you
1: so much for sharing and i can relate to that final and i'm sure lots of our listeners can too so really appreciate you coming on to tell us more about Kit's journey. It's been awesome to see it from coffee shop when you were starting your entrepreneurial journey to where you've taken the business today. So, many congratulations and uh, all the very best for the year ahead. I think it's going to be a really exciting one as more and more people get back to the office. Excited to see where things go. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, James. Cheers, Steve. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you're enjoying this series of 40 Minute Mentors so far, then please do consider subscribing and leaving us a review on ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. It really does help us spread the word and help make business mentorship even more accessible. That's all again from us today, but please make sure you tune in again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship.